This season of the Sober Curious podcast is supported by Liars, an award-winning line of 13 impossibly crafted non-alcoholic spirits. This week, I'm sharing the recipe for a Liars Boulevardier, which is a little bit like a Negroni in terms of its flavor profile. To make it, simply stir one ounce each of Liars American Malt, Liars Aperitif Rosso, and Liars Italian Orange over fresh cubed ice. Serve it in an old-fashioned glass, poured over fresh ice if you like, and garnished with an orange slice. And there you have a delicious and sophisticated pre-dinner drink with zero hangover attached. Liars is available on Amazon, Bevmo, and at liars.com. That's L-Y-R-E-S dot com. And you can visit liars.com forward slash sobercurious to sign up for a special 15% discount code. You can also follow along on Instagram and find more recipes at Liars Spirit Co. Welcome back again to the Sober Curious podcast, a place for conversations about leading a more conscious, connected and present life. I'm your host, Ruby Warrington, and my guest this week is Light Watkins, a renowned meditation coach and author who has also been a bit of a running buddy of mine in terms of our work in the new sobriety movement. We recorded this interview during the first week of protests calling for justice in the killing of George Floyd, and specifically on the day that was dubbed hashtag Blackout Tuesday, as people posted black squares in solidarity on their social media accounts in what was subsequently criticized for being an empty gesture. And so we dive in by discussing the power and the potential of social media activism when approached with a clear intention and a non-reactive mindset. We go on to talk about Light's own sober journey, including how he consciously weaned himself off alcohol over a period of months and how quitting drinking 20 years ago actually paved the way for him becoming a meditation teacher. We also discuss what it really means to be happy and how current world events represent a collective rock bottom of sorts, offering us all the opportunity to get sober from toxic systems and beliefs. Thank you as always for listening. This is Light Watkins. Light Watkins, welcome to Sober Curious. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm so happy we're having this conversation. This is, I think, the third time we rescheduled. We finally made it work. Yep. <laughs> and, it feels, and a very interesting time as well. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, it feels like it was kind of, we were divinely put on pause to have this conversation until now. We were going to talk in January and something just didn't feel right about it. And I was like, no, let's wait. Who could have seen at the beginning of January, even where we would be today? For those who are listening, this is going to be out um, a couple of months after we recorded it today. Um, we are still in the midst of writing an unrest in response to the killing of George Floyd. Um, there's a social media protest happening. And I think that's somewhere we could dive in. You're an active social media figure. I've really appreciated the videos that you've been sharing recently about your own experience of racism, racial profiling, offering just kind of insight into like, how can we, how can we address this rather than just kind of like keep sweeping it under the carpet and pretending it's happening to <laughs> other people. Right. And that we're not all implicated in this. Um, right. Regardless of our, the color of our skin, we're all implicated in this system of oppression. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. And we all have our roles to play in eradicating it. And I, I've really appreciated what you've been sharing. I've been sharing your videos with friends who, who were asking those questions often as white people do, but what can I do? How can I rush it and save the day? Well, mm -hmm. for a start, you can listen. Here's something mm -hmm. to listen to. But I would love to hear your, your thoughts. Let's just dive in here. Um, you know, what are your thoughts about social media activism? I've been sort of ambivalent about it for a while, and I'm beginning to see the value in it, I think. What are your thoughts? You know, I think with, as with everything, um, it really depends on how people use social media. So there are obviously some kind of, uh, they call it slacktivist kind of, you know, ways where you can sit back and just like something and feel like, oh, yeah, I've done my part. And um, but on the on the larger, I think in a larger context, when we look back, maybe 50 or 100 years from now at this time, what we're going to see is that unlike 50 years ago from today, things could happen to someone that were not cool and no one would know about it except a few people in their community. Whereas now something that can happen, something that happens is not cool. Everybody in the world can know about it within a few minutes. And I think that's really powerful because it, it, it's brought in a level of checks and balances that would never have existed um, you know, 50 years ago, where you have someone who is you know, like the Central Park situation. That little exchange would never make national or international news, you know, even five years ago, 10 years ago. But the fact that the guy had a camera and he was able to record uh, a woman who was basically overreacting and, and making up this, this idea of he was uh, threatening her life in order to get the police to come out and, and threaten his life. Um, I mean, that was, that's something you can't research online to see, oh, what are the statistics of, you know, well, how often is this happening? There's no studies that have those little incidents in them, but the power of video, I think, has is it, it puts everybody on alert that hey, look, I can't just be doing this stuff to people anymore because I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to get publicly shamed. And so, on one hand, again, you know, we use social media to compare and, and inadvertently to shame other people. But I think the shaming could actually also be used for for helping people to be behave more uh, appropriately with other people. There's a level of accountability with it, right? Yes. It's like no longer, we all have a platform now. Even if our That's platform right. is 50 followers or if it's 50,000 followers, we all have a platform. We all have an opportunity to speak That's up right. and call out injustice when we see it. And I think you're right. That's very different. I've been thinking about, you know, 30 years ago, and this is a, sort of just a, a more esoteric take, but 30 years ago, we had a very similar astrological transit happening. And it was when we had the, um, the LA riots in response to the Rodney King um, incident. And it's kind of like, well, here we are again, we're learning, we're getting served the same lesson again, 30 years later, like we're still here. But I mm -hmm. think actually the fact that we're um, able to not able to that we're we're absorbing this news we're 
seeing this unfold, because even then it was, you know, this was the time of video news. It was eyewitness news. So it was all over everybody's television sets the world over, but still the TV set is distant. It's not my life. It's them rather than me here in my living room. But social media, our social media feeds is where we connect with our friends. It's where we connect with our family. It's where we find soulmates. It's where we discover and pursue our passions. And Mm -hmm. so it's like there's no longer any separation between these events that are happening on the streets outside our homes and what's happening in our homes, like in our everyday life. And I think there's something incredibly powerful about that. And I think that could also make it feel a bit perverse as well because people are engaging with other people, you know, all over the world from their toilet, from their bed, from their kitchen table. When you have media, uh, when you have videos and, and whatnot of people doing very provocative things, it can seem like, oh, this is now entered into my home and I have to, I have to do something about this right now. And I think the really big reminder, you know, this has been the kind of the essence of my work is, you can create space between yourself and whatever media you're consuming. And that's going to help you to be able to sort of manage it a little bit better and, uh, and take, and, and take in and, and deal with things that are really important and the other stuff just kind of, you know, let it go right back out. And mm-hmm. if you don't have that space through whatever kind of inner work you've been doing, and this is where sobriety comes in too, you know, because if you don't have all of your faculties, available to you, then it's easier to kind of put yourself, to expose yourself to things that aren't, aren't necessarily um, important or to ignore things that are important. And so you're never quite at, at your center where you should be in order to be able to move through this stuff and, and figure out what's, what's most important, what's next most important, and what's not important at all in any moment. And I think that's what ultimately provides a sense of liberation and freedom within the chaos. Absolutely. Yeah. I think um, I'm thinking about the difference between react, reacting and responding. And Mm. I think that's a really critical piece that you're sort of bringing up here and something that certainly both meditation and sobriety have helped me to appreciate. There's such a big difference between the knee jerk reaction, which is often adrenaline fueled, like I got to leap in and do something, or I'm just going to have this intense physical or emotional reaction (laughs) that's going to like disable my decision-making capabilities. Or am I going to be able to, like you say, have that space, that energetic kind of like buffer almost where I can observe this situation and I can take on board what's happening and I can respond in a way that feels appropriate and that's actually useful and it's actually helpful and it's actually, yeah, the, the right way to respond. So I'd love to, you know, hear a bit about your background. You've been teaching meditation since 2007 and I'd Mm -hmm. love to hear a bit about how you came to that path and why it's so important to you. Yeah, sure. I started off, um, (laughs) I started off, in the yoga space. So I was a yoga teacher for several years in Los Angeles. And then I noticed that um, although I'd read a lot about meditation, you know, there's obviously a connection between yoga and meditation. The big cliche or the catchphrase is you do yoga to prepare yourself for meditation. Well, the problem was I never quite felt like I was very good as a meditator. 
I, I, and I was leading meditations. So I felt like I was a bit fraudulent as a meditation guide. Um, and I wasn't sure if it was me or if it was this, just the fact that I hadn't put enough time in or, you know, I just didn't understand why meditation was this such an elusive experience. Cause I literally just felt like I was sitting there uncomfortably with my eyes closed, staring at the back of my eyelids. And there was literally nothing more than that. And I was just biding the time, waiting for the experience to be done. But I had the soft voice. I've always had a nice voice for guiding. And so people would look at me and I could be still, you know, and people would look at me and think that I was, I, I think they would project onto me this, this other, you know, this Nirvana experience. I just, I felt like I was, it was, it was the emperor with no clothes type of, of thing happening. And so I eventually was introduced to my meditation teacher who was a former transcendental meditation teacher. Um, and that was the first time I felt like a tangible experience was actually happening in meditation. And that's where I kind of fell in love with the practice. And I knew pretty much right away after I met my teacher and started training with him, I knew that I was destined to be a meditation teacher for myself. And this was in 2003. So then in 07, I was invited by him after many years of, of apprenticing and protege status. He, he invited me over to India to train me how to, and, and to becoming a meditation teacher myself. And that's, that's when I, I stopped teaching yoga and, and became a full-time meditation teacher. Um, and went on to teach thousands of people and write books and stuff. So, yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for being so honest about your early experiences of meditation <laughs> that even as a, you know, even as this spiritual person practicing yoga, you've had that experience that the majority of people I think experience when they first try to meditate. I've heard 100%. so many, so many people and you must hear this like day in, day out. I just can't meditate. I'm just no good at it. <laughs> but that's everyone's experience, right? Is that a necessary, is it right? I mean, is it right? I'm like, right. As if I know <laughs> you're the expert here. Is that most people's experience? Is that a necessary part of kind of developing or beginning or planting the seeds of a meditation practice? Does everybody go through that? And then the other thing I'd love to um, hear is what changed when you when you started teaching with this, or started studying rather with this new teacher, like what was the, was there a light bulb moment or was it a slow realization that, oh, there is something for me here? Sorry, two part question. Yeah, no, what's interesting is I, um, I, I wrote in my book, Bliss More, which is my last book. It's about, it's like basically a how to meditate book. I used it, I opened it with this, uh, this metaphor. I said, you know, meditation, is is treated as this sort of arbitrary thing and all you need to do is just show up and sit down and close your eyes and now you're meditating right and on one level that's kind of true you're, that's that is absolutely right you you can sit down and and close your eyes and and you could consider that to be meditation but i said it's kind of like showing up at a beach with a surfboard and then going out into the water to have a surfing experience for the first time and you have no prior instruction. And if for anyone who's experienced surfing, 
that's a horrible idea <laughs> because there's so much to consider. First of all, you may not even be at the right beach, right? <laughs> there may be no waves. Second of all, you may need a suit, a wetsuit. How thick is your wetsuit depends on the temperature of the water. It depends on the, the, the season, right? How long the board is depends on your experience level. Like there's so many things. How to stand up on a board, where to sit on the board, how to carry the board into the water so it doesn't slap you in the nose and break your nose. So if you learn all of those things by someone who, who's competent enough to understand those, those mechanics, you can actually have a decent experience in the beginning. But if you don't know those things and you just treat the whole experience like it's arbitrary, it's going to be horrible. It's going to be terrible. And you'll probably swear, swear that it doesn't work and you're never going to do it again. And so what I learned from my teacher is that there is nothing arbitrary about meditation. And he was very good at helping me understand the mechanics, literally like what's the best time of day to do it? What's the second best time? Where's the best place to sit? How long is the best time frame to, to sit in meditation? What do you do with your thoughts? What happens if you fall asleep? What do you have to, get to pee? All these different considerations. And so that's what I do now for other people. And if you don't have someone who can do that for you, then typically meditation is going to be terrible. It's going to be horrible. Just like I experienced my first three or four years. But I've seen people who've never sat to meditate one day in their life. They come and they, they work with me or they read my books and they're having pretty enjoyable experiences pretty much right away. And it's, it's not because they're more gifted or their mind is, is able to settle more than anyone else's. It's just that they understand the mechanics better because they took the time and invested the energy into, into understanding those mechanics. Right. And to actually treating it as a practice, not just right. like you say, sitting down, closing my eyes and ignoring my thoughts, because that's going to be frustrating. Like thoughts. Oh my thunk. God. Thoughts want to be thunk. They are going to like <laughs> knock on the inside of your head until you think them. They're not just going right. to, they don't just like go away. Their whole entire purpose is to have you think them. And so it can just end up feeling like this horrible battle until you have, um, as you say, some kind of instruction. So your book, Bliss More, which came out a few years ago, and you're writing a new book currently, which is coming probably next yes. year, um, yes. is one way for people to begin to engage more deeply with the practice. And then you say that, you know, you when you began practicing this way, you realized that there was something here for you that went beyond even your personal practice. What did you discover? What did you discover about yourself, about the world, about the practice? Like why, yeah. did, why, did, why did it have such an impact on you as an, you personally? Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was uh, the first time that I felt like I was able to connect the dots between all of the things that I was reading about meditation, you know, allowing you to access this internal state of nirvana or bliss or samadhi. And I, 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 those terms, they all sound great, you know, but it's just, I never really had a direct experience with them. And then I was able to actually tap into that. And it's like, you know, it's like you hear about this watermelon fruit and, but you never had one. And then it's hard to be able to relate it to anything, you know, cause Maybe it's like an apple. I don't know. Maybe it's like a banana. Maybe it's like a mango. Maybe it's like a coconut. I don't know. You know, and those things are all great, but none of them are exactly like a watermelon. So by the time you have a watermelon, 
and you discover that taste for the first time, you know, it, you may think oh, there's nothing like this, but it's, it's so sweet. It's so delicious. It's so this, it's so that. And I want everybody else to try it too, because it's so unique. It's such a unique experience to the happiness that you get when you have a puppy or the happiness that you get when you're um, falling in love or the happiness you get when you're out on a camping trip or any of these other kinds of experiences that can bring little waves of happiness when you're in the experience, but it doesn't, it's not the same quality. It's not the same quality of happiness. So that, that's kind of what, what provoked me to, to make it more, take it more seriously once I started doing that. So you're saying you felt a, a, a quality of happiness that you hadn't experienced before in your life, and it was something that you wanted more of. Yeah, and I think it's what the Buddha and all those guys were referring to with this whole idea of inner happiness. Because I think a lot of people hear that term and they they don't have anything to really relate it to, inner happiness. And therefore, it's not as much of a priority because, I mean, for all we know, happiness is happiness is happiness. So what's the difference in me being happy because I found a $5 bill in my pocket versus me being happy because I meditated? I, you could even think, and I've heard, I've talked to people you know, in my teaching career who say, oh, I don't need to meditate. I'm already happy. And I get that because I've always kind of felt more or less content inside, right? I'm not the most reactive person. I, I, I usually uh, am more responsive by nature. But what I've gotten from meditation that I, I don't think I could have gotten had I not invested the, the time that I've put into meditating is, is that sense of, of connectedness that that reminds me when, especially when things aren't going the way that I think they should be going, which is usually when it comes in the most handy, reminds me that even though it looks like things have gone off the rails, it's still going to work out. Everything is still going to be okay. And it's not just like a, a mental exercise where I'm having to think positive, right? I could even be thinking about the worst case scenario, but then there's something inside of me that I've kind of allowed to blossom that reminds me that it's, it's all going to work out. It's all going to be okay in the most beautiful and perfect way. And so that's been, that's been priceless because what it does is it keeps you grounded. It keeps you rooted in the present moment. And you realize that that's where all of the wonderful opportunities exist are in the present moment. It's not in worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow. And it's not in regretting what happened yesterday. It's about being right here, right now. I love that description. And I can relate to that as well, having been a regular meditator myself for around about five years now, I suppose. Just that mm -hmm. feeling of, it's, it reminds me, it sounds a bit like I've, I wasn't brought up in any kind of organized religion. My family never took me to church. There was never any kind of conversations around spirituality. But it reminds me of how people talk about having faith, faith in God or faith in higher power, you know. Just there's mm -hmm. this sense of whatever's unfolding, it will be okay. Right. I'm going to be looked after whatever path appears in front of me. It's the right path for me and that's, I accept it, you know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how this dovetails with sobriety and you being an advocate in that space. I'll share a little mm -hmm. bit about um, my experience of your work in that way. It's, it's, it's interesting. I don't think I've even put this in my book, but I sort of, it, this is another reason I was so excited to talk to you because I feel like we've, 
our paths have been like running along concurrently for the past few years now to the extent we even coincidentally have the same literary agent and we're both booked to lead weekend retreats at the Omega Institute the same weekend in October, which sadly have been canceled. But it's almost like there's this like Watkins character and he's just kind of been there on the periphery. But as it relates to sobriety, it's like um, when I was first thinking about doing events, the club soda events that I used to run with our mutual friend, Biet Simkin here in New York, um, I, had, I organized a small group gathering, a small gathering in my apartment. Because so I was like, why is, why is no one talking about sobriety outside of the context of like AA and recovery circles? This is something, this, this is something we should all be talking about. So I did this small kind of gathering at my home just to see what people would think about it. And we all were like, this is cool. This needs to happen. And I think that next weekend, the New York Times did this big article on the Shine movement, which is something you founded in, I think, 2014, which were these kind of variety show events, which were all alcohol free and focused around mindfulness and conscious living. And at first, the competitive Aries part of me was like, oh shit, someone's doing it. And then almost immediately afterwards, the, um, yeah, the compassionate seeker part of me was like, fuck yeah, this is a real thing. This is a real thing. This is so exciting. So yeah, tell me about the Shine movement, where the idea for that came from, um, why you felt called to bring it into the world. And again, how it relates to you personally and your, your story. You know, what's interesting about that article um, in the New York Times when it came out, I remember being disappointed because the focus of the article was on sobriety. And I thought that the, the event was so much more than just people not drinking, right? And that just kind of tells you where I was thinking about it. Because I had been sober for so many years that for me, it just seemed like the most natural thing in the world. And while it was a part of the experience, it was just a part of the experience. And I wanted to really to talk about, you know, the whole inspiration component and, um, and how it was like a TED talk and how it was kind of like, a, you know, the meditation aspect and all of those things. And, oh, yeah, by the way, in order to have the full experience, we want people to get naturally high so we don't encourage alcohol consumption. And then the whole article came out about being an al- uh, being alcohol free. Um, and then that created a domino effect. We got so many articles after that about everybody wanted to talk about this whole sobriety thing, this movement. And I just kept getting more and more upset because I just, that's not what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> I oh wanted to talk God. about inspiration <laughs> and, and happiness and all of that. So it's just kind of funny because I, I ended up coming full circle and I was like, yeah, this actually is cool. I didn't realize, I didn't realize how much it wasn't happening until um, everybody, all the media wanted to talk about it. And, and then I started to appreciate more and more what we were doing because I didn't think of it in that way. I didn't think we were some sort of trailblazers of, of, sobri- of, a, of a sobriety social movement. But, um, but yeah, it's kind of cool to, that we, are all, we all played a part in that. And because, you know, I think, I think, I think the sobriety word itself is a little bit, there's a stigma around it. Like you said, it's associated with recovery groups. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to attract that culture into what we were doing. I wanted to attract regular people who could, who could, who were inspired by the idea of going a couple hours on a Saturday night without 
any alcohol in their system just to see what happens like as an experiment. So, cause a lot of sobriety groups wanted to promote us and I was actually kind of reluctant to, to let them do that. Cause I didn't, I didn't want, I didn't want it to be that, you know? And, yeah. um, but yeah, it was, a, it was a fun experience and it's still, it's, we're sort of restructured. We did it for five years straight and then we started, we're in the process of restructuring it into, and thank God, I mean, we didn't know this was going to happen, but you know, it, it would have stopped it anyways. But we decided that we wanted it to be more of a micro level experience that people could actually do for themselves in their own living rooms. And that way we can spread it even further and wider and faster. That is a great idea. And it's exciting to hear because I, I was wondering, like, how does an, an operation like that um, is obviously going to be hugely affected by our current situation, but making it really accessible to people in that way sounds excellent. But it's so interesting, isn't it? That like, that's the, that was the piece that the media kind of picked up on. And I do think there was this real moment in time, 2015, 2016, where there was such a, there was a real rising kind of demand in the wider public to can we look at what's happening with alcohol here can we look at why this is such an integral part of our social lives and i think it coincided has coincided is coinciding with <laughs> a time when you know many people are finding tools like meditation like yoga they're raising their consciousness through these different avenues and are realizing that actually alcohol is just not a fit not only is it not a fit and no and being out of it and disengaged and unconscious no longer aligns with their values, but actually it is a substance that present, prevents them from accessing higher states of consciousness and deeper connections with other individuals and their creative self and the inspiration that you speak about, which Jesus, right. if we need anything right now, we need <laughs> creativity, inspiration, positivity, right. like deep connection, you know, all right, of these things right, which right. alcohol just takes us further away from. Yeah. And that, that, that was really the intent, you know, um, cause I felt like the news was so negative and people needed something to kind of recharge them and balance them and, and make them feel more inspired and hopeful about mankind. And, and that was why, that was why, so it wasn't really the alcohol thing, but, but that was, you know, it was, a, it was a desirable side effect that came out mm. of the whole thing. Mm. So Definitely. So what about, yeah. you said you've been sober for several years. What's, yes. your own, what's your own sort of story? Was that as a result of you just being in this more sort of conscious lifestyle as a yoga and meditation teacher? Or was it, was it a sober, sober journey? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, it was definitely an, an untraditional journey. I, I just, you know, I, I was experimenting with, um, with my diet. I was cutting back on meat and sugar and all of those things and then naturally i just started questioning um you know i was doing a lot of reading about the effects of different foods and everything on your system and naturally the topic of alcohol came up and i was just it was more of a function of being hyper obsessed with my health and wanting to be in like the top health that i could be in and i just i didn't see a place for putting toxins in my in my body if I wanted to experience that level of health. So it was, it was something that I, and, and you know, fortunately for whatever good fortune, I should say, I wasn't, I didn't have a problem. And so I, although I did drink on, on occasion, it was a fairly 
painless process of coming off the alcohol, you know, and I didn't give my, I didn't do cold Turkey and all of that. Cause I, I respect the pendulum effect. And so I gave myself a period of maybe I think six months or so to wean myself off slowly, you know, literally like being very intentional about saying, okay, this week I'm only going to have whatever, three glasses of wine. And then the next week I'm only going to have two glasses of wine like that. And so I did that and gradually ended up coming off of the alcohol. It didn't, it didn't, hurt that I was saving money and I was feeling better and I was sleeping better. And so I started getting all the real world benefits that you can get after only going a few days without drinking any alcohol. And so, um, I just, I just paid more attention to that. And, uh, you know, you, you, basic stuff, really practical stuff, like not keeping any alcohol in my house. Um, not going out places where there's heavy alcohol consumption. And so having those kinds of of tactics helped a lot as well. And then like next thing I knew, I looked up and I just wasn't drinking anymore. And it was kind of awesome. And so while I haven't been a hundred percent sober, I mean, over the years, this was like 20 years ago. So over the years, you know, here and there you go to a wedding or something, people are toasting. I may have a little sip here and a little whatever there, a little cider. But it's more of a function of just, you know, just being um, celebratory in certain situations. But if there's anything, like if I have to work or if I have to, if I just want to sleep well that night or like I know the effects that it's having on my body and it doesn't feel good. So it's got to be a really good occasion for me to, to, to make an exception. But the important thing is I don't think about it, right? I go out and I can have dinner, I will never think about, oh, I should get some wine. What kind of alcohol would pair with it? Like, that doesn't cross. If anything, it kind of disgusts me. I'm just like, oh, God, that would ruin everything, <laughs> having to force myself to drink some liquor in order to have a good time with these people. If I'm hanging out with people that I need to be drunk or t- tipsy to have a good time with, then I'm hanging out with the wrong people, I've decided. Yeah. I think a lot of people will, well, maybe a lot of people who are listening are sort of slowly coming to that awareness. There's a few <laughs> things I want to back, back up to there. I think that yeah. the, the occasions, I sort of have this very similar attitude actually when people ask me, so are you sober? Are you completely sober? I can't say, I, I can't in integrity say that I'm completely sober because at a wedding or some other kind of celebratory, and it's, it's celebratory or ritualistic where it's Mm. part of a ritual and it's part of, there's something sacred almost about like joining in with the ritual. However, now I feel I'm far removed enough from my own kind of like addictive tendencies with alcohol to be able to engage in that and to know that it's not going to kind of like take me back down that same path again. And it's definitely taken several years for me to get to that point. But I do think there's something ritualistic sometimes about Mm. engaging in a group activity like that Mm -hmm. yeah and you know again you you have to weigh your own your your natural sort of disposition for these things you know like i drink coffee but i wouldn't consider myself to be a coffee drinker because i can go i can go away from any coffee for however long months at a time and not even think about it one time you know Mm. um but then when i'm when i'm near a place where they do have a certain coffee that I like, I can drink it and it's not a big deal. So, but if, if I was an addict in any way, then yeah, you, you need to definitely be more, um, uh, strict with yourself and, yeah. and more accountable. 
I'm pausing this episode to tell you about Groovy, a line of craft-brewed non-alcoholic beers and wines based out of Denver, Colorado. Groovy is one of my personal favorite brands in the non-alcoholic space as the flavor profiles of their products are just really, really top-notch. After starting out with a delicious IPA and tangy rice beer, they have since added a refreshing lager and creamy stout to their offerings. While their alcohol-free Prosecco is also hands down one of the best booze-free wine alternatives I have tried. A firm favorite among the sober curious, it's become my go-to for when I have anything to celebrate. And I'm extra excited about the launch of their new Bubbly Rosé, which will be available from mid-August 2020. You can stock up directly and get the latest updates at getgroovy.com. That's get G-R-U-V-I.com. But you can also find a stockist near you. You can also use the code SOBERCURIOUS through the end of 2020 to get 15% off your online order. That offer is limited to once per user. Now back to the episode. Tell me about the pendulum effect. I haven't heard that terminology before, but I like the sound so of the, it. <laughs> yeah, the pendulum effect is if you go cold turkey with trying to quit something, usually what will end up happening is you'll swing back like a pendulum in the opposite direction. So you'll, you'll indulge in that thing with a vengeance um, because you, you're not respecting your body's biochemical addiction to that thing. And it takes time to break that biochemical addiction down. You can theoretically not consume it, but it's just like, you know, in the hospitals, they keep six packs of beer for people who try to go cold turkey with their alcohol addiction, because you're, you can actually kill yourself by stopping alcohol overnight if you've been consuming a certain amount of alcohol. So they have to literally give you drip feeds of alcohol in order to wean you off uh, a lot slower. And that's a very dramatic example, but it's just, it's to, it proves a larger point that, you know, if you, it's not really your mind that's addicted to this substance, whether it's caffeine, cigarettes, sugar, whatever, it's really your body that's addicted. And you need to respect and honor that which means putting stop gaps in place um, that may cause you to to fall short in your integrity with trying to quit something, right? And understand that it may be a longer process than you are probably initially thinking. It's just like the every we've all had the experience when you go to work out, you haven't worked out in a while, and in your mind, you're like Rocky Balboa. You know, you're going to be doing everything. <laughs> you're going to run, you know, 10 miles on the treadmill and then you get on the treadmill and then after you know an eighth of a mile you're like oh my god I'm dying right now I don't think I can go a whole a whole mile much less 10 miles so the body usually has its own agenda based on what we've been doing with it or not doing with it and we need to factor that into the equation and it's nice to have you know um, a vision of where we see ourselves but we just need to be a little more flexible with the timeline I think that's a really fantastic way of breaking it down and actually i've always been quite sort of anti the idea of moderation when people start talking about i'm just going to try and moderate i'm always a bit like "Hmm, you're probably going to end up 
back where you started. If you're really mm. sober curious, for me being sober curious is about the curious about what it means to live a sober life, like as a non-drinker, like not having that thing in your life. Moderation is kind of like, I'm still going to keep it here in my back pocket for when I really quote unquote need it, right? Right, right. But actually you're presenting me with the first ever log- logical case like I've heard for moderation. If the point of your moderation is to eventually wean off completely and you are able to hold that intention with integrity and continue to work towards that integrity, that intention of actually weaning off it, then moderation as you move towards that ultimate goal could be useful. Well, and you know, just the, the, I think the idea of moderation is a little different from what I'm, the the conventional idea of moderation is a little different from what I'm talking about. Cause like you pointed out, it's it's to moderately wean yourself off of something instead of starkly weaning yourself off. And I think when people talk about moderation, they talk about it in the terms of I can keep doing it. I don't have any plans of not doing it, but I'm just not going to do it as much. Mm. And that's yeah, that's unsustainable. It's it's a it's a really a delusion um, that that the addiction itself will plant into your mind to make you to 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 um, rid the idea of getting rid of 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 coming off of whatever the substance is. So, but yeah, I think, I think moderately weaning yourself off. So with a, with a, a, a strong intent to one day come off of it and having, even having a deadline of when that day is going to come so that you can reverse engineer what the moderation plan looks like, then I think that's, that's definitely um, one of the healthier ways to do it healthier and more sustainable, like you said. Mm. And I think that, you know, meditation, going back to that point that we spoke about really early on, meditation being a practice that creates this kind of energetic buffer between our inner self and our external experience is such a valuable tool whilst navigating that path. Mm-hmm. You have, mm-hmm. Even having that extra split second of, do I really want this drink? Am I really Oh my God, it can make all the drink? difference in the world. Yeah. All of the difference in the world. was was your was your sober journey running concurrently i guess it sounds like it was a little bit before you learned to meditate properly (laughs) was it doing what was it was it running concurrently or did it come no no actually the sober journey started probably 10 no it started maybe five or six years beforehand And, you know, I would even credit that with giving me the space to even consider getting involved in meditation and yoga. You know, if I feel like if I was still, again, I was never really indulgent, but if I was still under the influence of even just a little bit of alcohol, maybe, maybe I would not have even been in a space to see the value in something like inner work or yoga or any of those kinds of things. And that's the thing with, 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 you know, with not drinking is you may stop drinking and it's not like, you know, there's going to be this huge awakening necessarily, but you just have, you can't even place a value on the things that you, you would have done had you not been drinking, like all the bad decisions and you know, the people you surround yourself with that aren't necessarily, they don't have your best interest in, at heart and, you know, all of these things. Um, everything has a cost. Everything has a consequence. And it, 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 
it's definitely if you can you add all that up you know even if you just have a normal um sober life it's still going to be probably a lot better than what would have been happening had you continued on down that path of of even drinking moderately Mm. yeah i think and this is something I talk about, but for a moderate drinkers who get sober curious and decide to remove it, it's often only when you remove it. If it hasn't been bringing to your knees on a regular basis, it's only when you remove it that you realize how much of life you've been missing. That's right. And so much of what is missed is, it's reminding me again about how you spoke of these different qualities of happiness. Mm -hmm. There's a subtlety in that kind of language, like that can only really be developed, I think, when we become so present to the different sensations and the different physicalities that we experience in our body day on day. Mm-hmm. The idea of having different qualities of happiness that we can experience. How, how lovely is that? What a beautiful goal is that? If we're going to have a goal for ourselves, you know, <laughs> and I think that's something I've really noticed since completely removing alcohol is just that how much I enjoy the subtle experience of life and how there are so many subtle pleasures in the day when I'm just fully mm-hmm. aware of my mm-hmm. body and my experience, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, and I think, I think that fruit example is actually, I, it's the first time I've ever used it, but I think it's a pretty good one. Cause if you take you, whatever your favorite fruit is and just imagine your life without ever having tried that, but knowing that it exists, but you've never actually tasted it for yourself. It's not like it doesn't have to discount the other fruits. It's just that there is this thing out there that exists that if you tap into it, it can be so sweet and it can just add that much more um, perspective onto onto other things, onto the idea idea of fruit itself. And, 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 you know, that's something you can't even, you can't intellectualize. You know, it's got to become a sensual experience at one point. And I think that's what meditation does for happiness. Mm-hmm. I love that fruit analogy. And I like the fact you were debuting it here. As you were listing <laughs> the other fruits, I was like, I couldn't imagine living without mango or living without right. coconut, you know? Right, like- <laughs> right. You like the, the old pina colada days, huh? No, oh, kidding. God, no. It's funny. <laughs> My husband is um, also a non-drinker and he's been, he's invented a new um drink which i'm going to debut here as well it's not the healthiest necessary but it's diet cherry pepsi with pineapple juice oh my god <laughs> oh my god that sounds too sweet for my it's taste delicious <laughs> <laughs> but yeah this is this, the subtle pleasures of life that are available when we really kind of like sensitize our systems i suppose is is mm-hmm. what i'm getting to but tell me a bit about more you know 20 years ago you were really into health and well-being it's way before the modern kind of wellness industry sort of brought this idea about that we can look after our own health and that the stuff we eat can have an impact on our well-being, not just our physical well-being, but our mental, emotional well-being as well. Mm-hmm. You were way ahead of the curve in investigating that from the sound of things. Were you always just, what led you into that path? Were you always, were you into sports and fitness in that kind of way? Or were you like just a curious seeker soul? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, it's 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 I I believe in the idea of God, meaning, you know, the higher intelligence and all of that. <laughs> and so the uh, it's not in a necessarily a religious sense, although I don't I'm not anti-religion. Um, and I I believe that God placed in angel in my path to sort of open my eyes up to that whole thing in a very 
in a very unlikely way. And so the story is before my sober journey, I was, um, I was modeling of all things. I was a fashion model. I was, I was down in Miami beach and, um, and there was this guy who was in my field. He was another model and he was, he was just in everything. I looked in every magazine and he was there and I just really, I really uh, admired his, his work and lo and behold i'm on my i'm in miami beach on, on south beach and i see this guy who i've sort of idolized for ever since i started becoming a model and i was never really like a popular famous model or anything like that but he was and he was coming down the street he was on a skateboard he had no shirt on he had these like loose jeans and <laughs> he was smoking a cigarette and so he's i stopped him and i was like oh my i was like it was like seeing you know I don't know. It was like seeing whoever your favorite entertainer or celebrity is. And I was like almost at a loss for words. And I stopped him and I just said, Hey, I just wanted to say I'm a really big fan of your work and blah, blah, blah. And he was just so casual. And, uh, and he was looking, he could probably tell I was so green behind the ears as a model and brand new. And so he's just kind of looking at me as he's taking drags on his cigarette. And then finally he says, uh, says, you know what, you, sh- you should stop eating meat. And I said, okay, well, why? And he motioned towards my jaw bones and he says, you're, if you stop eating meat, your jawline will become more structured because he was implying that I was holding a lot of water in my face and, uh, and the meat was somehow adding to that. And, and, he, and it was a way to kind of, I guess, hack the whole physical thing for modeling so that you can get better, get more work. So anyway, it was like God was telling me to stop eating meat. <laughs> I had never even- Got on a skateboard, smoking a cigarette. Got on a skateboard, smoking a cigarette. Yeah, I never <laughs> considered in a million years being vegetarian. I probably had a pepperoni pizza and a Wendy's burger that day before I ran into him. But literally after that day, I was like, I'm not eating any meat. I'm going to stop eating meat because- God basically told me not to eat meat and I wanted to work and I idolized. So it couldn't have come in a better package than this guy um, who I idolized. And then, so I stopped eating. I started experimenting with not eating any meat and lo and behold, I stopped having headaches. And I thought, I thought headaches was just this thing that randomly came to you, um, you know, for whatever because you had bad luck or something like that. I never even considered that food could be tied to the way you feel about yourself or the way your mind works or any of those things. So then I got really curious and this is now we're talking like literally over maybe a few years of experimenting. I got curious about it and started reading books and uh, yeah. And so I read, I read a bunch of books about diet. I read the, the, Tim, I think his name is Tim Robbins or something Robbins book, John Robbins, um, Diet for a New America. He talked about the SAT diet, the standard American diet. And so that's what kind of, that was, that's what opened up the floodgates for me diet wise, which then eventually, like, as I said earlier, led to the sobriety. 
is because it just didn't add up. When I, once I made the connection that everything you put in your body, even the stuff you slather on your skin is being digested and consumed you know, I changed my deodorant thing. I changed my toothpaste. I got all my mercury fillings taken out. I like, I did a whole internal uh, revamp of everything that I was consuming and putting on my body so that I could, so I didn't get into my own way health wise, you know, and end up with some cancer situation 20 years later because I was using this deodorant with aluminum in it. I mean, just to seem, it seemed like nonsense not to pay attention to those little things because you know it's like i say death by a thousand cuts well it's also health by a thousand choices and if you start making those thousand choices as early as you can then you don't have to ever worry about getting sick or getting you know diseases and stuff like that because those diseases are accumulation of a lot of bad choices and that that's how i thought about it and and i still do think about it that way although i'm a lot more flexible with things just because I've gotten older and, you know, just traveling and whatnot. You just, you just have to pick your battles. <laughs> yeah, totally. Thank you for sharing that. I think that'd be really inspiring to a lot of people listening and light. It's something else that we have in common. My kind of sober curious and sort of spiritual personal development journey also began with quitting eating meat in 2010 Mm. So yeah, bit I thought you were going to say but... with modeling. I was like, yeah, I, could see you. I could see you modeling. <laughs> I don't know about that. I was working in fashion though. I was working on a fashion magazine at the time, so it was definitely Which in one? that world. Um, Sunday Times Style Magazine. Oh wow! Sunday Times kind of style supplement. I was yeah. the features editor, and certainly it was a world that was very much about physical appearance. Mm-hmm. And your value and worth was va- based on how you look, the clothes you wore, and that was kind of how I'd. Um, yeah, how, how I'd validated my self-worth in the world in a way landing that job was the ultimate kind of like <laughs> before there were blue ticks. For me, it was like the ultimate blue tick. Like you're a real person now. I remember going to one drinks event there and like mentally checking the different designer labels that I was wearing and being like, yes, okay, I've made it. Which is just the, the, the world that I was born into and bred into and that so many of us are bred into. But I remember I was sent on an assignment to cover Stella McCartney was doing a screening of that film, Food Inc. Mm-hmm. And I just remember sitting in the cinema in Soho in London watching Food Inc. And it really was just like, oh, shit. No, I can't do this anymore. I can't engage in this anymore. I can't, I can't be complicit in this industry anymore. I can't take part. And from that day forward, stopped eating meat. And physically, I just started, again, physically feeling so much better. And it really was this light bulb moment of like, wow, everything that I put in my body is having an impact on my overall physicality and, and, and ultimately self-esteem also. And it began this long journey of kind of adding things in, the meditation, the astrology practice, the yoga, removing things, the alcohol, right. the sugar, the coffee, the, the meat. Um, but yeah, so I still love a bit of coffee and sugar as well, occasionally. But again, I've got that, to that point where I'm like, is this an appropriate thing for me today? Do I overall feel in my equilibrium is going to be messed up by this? If there's a shadow of a doubt, I'm not going to have it. But some right. days it's fine. That's why you're so good at marketing and branding yourself is because you work at the Sunday Times. <laughs> I get it. Well, now. it goes all, back further than that. My dad, you know what I the remember, editors are looking for. 
Yes, I do. I know how to write a headline. It's true. (laughs) Even I remember, even when I was a kid, like my dad asking me, you know, what do you, what sort of career do you think you might want to go into? I would tell him advertising. (laughs) Mm. Because I just, I was obsessed with like ads on TV and ads in magazines and how they sold this idea, you know, and how you could really um, influence, have influence that way, even when I was really young. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I love anyway, it. I digress. I would love to, before we, before we um, wrap up today, I'd love to hear, I mean, I do think, and, and bringing it back full circle to this moment in time, you know, we kicked off this year in January. Well, let's even go back to, we could go back over the past few years, but just in the recent six months, terrible forest fires ravaging Australia and just bringing such a kind of like, okay, yeah, the house is literally on fire into yeah. COVID, this international global like global health pandemic which actually going back to what you say about death by or you know poor health by a million bad choices yeah. so much the impact of of covid the illness itself is so um dependent on the actual health of the person the yeah. underlying health issues of the person right so we have this huge health crisis and now I mean, let's not even go there towards the politics. We've got the election at the end of the year, so that will get its face. But now we have this, you know, this huge rupture again in our kind of like social justice system. Mm -hmm. And it does sort of feel like we're at this collective rock bottom, you know, something Mm -hmm. I've been kind of talking about a bit. And is this, is this going to be the wake up call that finally means we get sober from all of the crap that's kept these systems operating for so long yeah. And I wonder what you think is the role of meditation and sobriety, which I do feel have come much more into the kind of mainstream consciousness as we're moving through this portal together. Mm. What can be the role of these practices, these um, mindsets, as we kind of you know, navigate this time together? You know, what's interesting is I think as of now, we're, we're to 2020, right? Mm. I think on a mass scale, those two things, what they have in common is that when you do them, people think you're weird, right? When you say, hey, I'm going to go meditate, people think, okay, like in the back of their mind, and maybe I'm projecting, I don't know, but I'm just talking about regular person in Indiana or, you know, Montana or Tennessee, they're thinking, oh, that's the weird thing that that person does, or maybe they're weird because they do it. And same with sobriety. It's like my friend posted something the other day. He said, the, this, it's the one addiction that when you stop it, people think something's wrong with you, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So I think that we need to get to a point as a society where those two things seem normal instead of weird. And maybe that's the symptom that will end up coming out of all of this reflection that we're all kind of being forced to do right now because we've been we've been living a very disconnected society and i think the root of it is in our definition for success we've been looking at success as i'm going to become the next warren buffett or the next mark zuckerberg or the next oprah winfrey which is which is to say as soon as i make enough money then i'm going to be able to be happy, I guess. And, and it doesn't take, you don't have to be Sigmund Freud to realize that, you know, ha- there's really very little <laughs> correlation between the 
wealthiest people and the happiest people. Right. Um, and so I think if more people make that connection and, and, and use that to redefine what success means for them, then they may seem less likely to depend on coping mechanisms for achieving this kind of collective idea of, but ultimately unsustainable idea of success. And again, I'm not anti-money. I'm just pro happiness. Right. Mm. And they'll start to prioritize the things that are really adding to happiness, which is let me take out a little time to create some space inside so that I can see things more clearly. And Oh, by the way, drinking is not helping me see things more clearly. So maybe seeing things more clearly and showing up authentically and being myself, maybe that is, should be the new definition of success. And when that becomes a part of the day-to-day conversation, when someone goes, how are you doing today? Usually people interpret that, that as how is your journey of achieving success going? And if anything seemed to happen that, took you further away from making all the money, then that's a bad day. And if anything happened that, you know, surprisingly took you closer to your idea of making money equaling success, then that's a good day. But what if a good or bad day was based on the extent to which you could be yourself or not, or the extent to which you could show up authentically or not, or the extent to which you felt present or not, like that was a way more attainable way of achieving success. And then, Consequently, you feel happier as a result because you're yourself. You're not as depressed. You're not as anxious. You're not as manic because you're yourself. You're only depressed and manic and anxious when you aren't able to be yourself, when you feel like you have to pretend like you're somebody else in order to please other people or to fit into society. And I think that's just ultimately an unsustainable model. It's not going to go away anytime soon, but I, I think that it's entering slowly but surely into the conversation and we're going to get to a point where we can't ignore it any longer. And maybe we're already there. Well, yeah, maybe we're just getting an extra push in that yeah. direction as in a way, you know, the COVID situation certainly has forced us to put down so many of the external things that we had been, you know, had our happiness and success sort of dependent on. We can't have mm-hmm. those things anymore. Mm-hmm. And it just, what you're describing also makes me think about how so many of our definitions of success have relied on hierarchy, oppression, mm-hmm. exploitation mm-hmm. of the planet, of the people, mm-hmm. of our humanity, of our creativity. And I think we are getting to a point where more and more people are just like, no, I'm not, I'm not buying into that vision of success anymore because I know what comes, what, at what cost it mm-hmm. comes, you know? And I love the yep. idea of equating success with personal happiness and then having the presence of mind um, to be able to determine what actually makes me happy versus what am I being told is going to make me happy. I think that's a huge mm-hmm. piece. Mm-hmm. Like, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. I really hope that one day we'll get to guide retreat the same weekend and make it together. <laughs> I think so. I think, I think we're going to be crossing paths quite a bit in our future. Thank you again for being here, for getting sober curious and for being part of this conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and leave us a five-star rating on iTunes to help more people find the series. This podcast is edited and features original music by Aloe Audio. Find them at aloeaudio.com.